Welcome to the Legal Moves Podcast. I am your host, Zachary Strebeck. And on this episode, I'm talking with the duo that runs Road to Infamy Games, uh, Jeffrey Chin and Andrew Nerger. Uh, Jeff and Andrew, hello. Hi. Hey. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem. It's great to have you. Uh, I, I have wanted to get you on for a long time. You may not know that, but I <laughs> you've been on my <laughs> list of potential guests for, for years. So yeah, I'm glad to finally get you on here. Um, hopefully everyone, both you and, uh, and all the listeners are staying safe in, in these uncertain times. Um, so why don't we start Jeff and Andrew with the, just tell me a little bit about how you guys got involved in the tabletop games industry. So what's your background? Let's start with Jeff. Yeah. Um, for me, um, my game design, uh, aspirations kind of started back in like, junior high and high school. And it was actually a lot playing a lot of D and D and being a, a DM and running custom campaigns with my friends. And, uh, all the campaigns I would run were, um, like totally original rule sets and stuff. And eventually that kind of evolved into trying to make my own like reproducible experiences. And that's kind of like what game design is, right? It's kind of making a set of rules. You can, uh, reproduce those on moments uh, with, with other groups. And so kind of designing my own campaigns back in the day kind of evolved into this hobby of designing games. Eventually, uh, Andrew and I were living together in Chicago. We, we decided to, to embark on this adventure and try doing a Kickstarter um, and make a, a board game. So my, my cousin was kind of a big inspiration for this. Um, he does playing card designs and he's always been very successful on Kickstarter uh, with his company seasons playing cards. So that's kind of where I got the inspiration to, uh, to sort of self publish your own works. So we, we started out there. We had a really small first game called road to infamy on Kickstarter. And we had discussions after that on if we should continue and turn this into a company. And here we are like five, six later, and we're still doing it. Excellent. Andrew, did you have anything to add to that? <laughs> I uh, guess he kind of covered you that's as well. Definitely, yeah, that's definitely the history. Yeah, I would say like uh, I met Jeff in high school and we um, just everything was a game, whether we were doing improv games or making random games to entertain ourselves. So it was just something that we always did as a hobby and had fun, you know, searching through. So that's all. Otherwise, yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, I find you you need to love making games. I mean, I guess that makes sense. You know, in order to make games, mm-hmm. you need to love making games. But uh, for me, I also ran my own uh, role-playing game campaigns. We had a role-playing club in high school. So I was lucky enough to have a you know a place where we could do that. And I could run a Star Wars, the role-playing game campaign and kind of come up with my own adventures for that. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I never took the game design itself. So um, I'm always jealous of people that can, <laughs> uh, can sit down with nothing and, and create a game. It's always amazing. Thank you. All right. So, um, so how would you describe your style of games? I mean, is there an overall theme to the Road to Infamy style of products? I would say we really just make games that we want to play. And that usually computes to something that's five minutes or less on a rules explanation, five minutes or less to set up and is something you could show your parents, family, and they could, you know, their eyes won't be spinning, you know, before the game starts. 
Jeff, I don't know. Did you have any anything else as far as what would your I guess philosophy behind the your games? Is? Yeah, um, usually, I mean, now we're we're kind of going in a direction of we're looking for kind of a, either a unique mechanism or a, a u- unique component. Every time we're we're playing either some other designer's game or you know some prototype, we're always kind of that's the kind of the number one question is like, what's really the, the unique mechanism or component that draws your attention and feels like it makes this game stand out in this really flooded market of, of board games now. And so we're always trying to find that, that next little, little unique thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you have to have, you know, in all businesses, if you're trying to sell a game, you need to have some sort of unique selling point that means why would someone buy yours rather than someone else's? And that's, I guess that's important. It helps definitely to stand uh, stand out from from the crowd. I would imagine. Uh, speaking of unique components, your most recent Kickstarter was for a game called Canvas that successfully funded in May. Uh, can you tell me how that process went? I mean, it was pretty much right in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic. So I wonder if there was anything unique about your situation then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It was a really tough call when we were trying to figure out when to launch because it was yeah right when kind of quarantine was being put into place, COVID was hitting, and we were we did delay our campaign a week or two from when we originally planned on doing it. Um, we we had like everyone else, we had no idea if it was something that was going to blow over quickly or be this ongoing thing. We eventually just kind of decided to launch and see what happened. Right, we were actually kind of following suit of. Uh, Frosthaven was a really successful campaign that launched at the same time as us. And so we kind of followed their lead a little bit and they were obviously extremely successful, the most successful Kickstarter campaign ever you know, during this pandemic. Um, so with their strong start, we said, you know, hey, why not? Like people are still willing to, to back games on Kickstarter. So let's do it. Andrew, did you have any uh, thoughts about that? <laughs> Yeah, the time really, of the Kickstarter or, or anything like that. Yeah, nothing, nothing really to add. I mean, we had spent a ton of time. You know, there was a nine-month ramp up to getting close to launching. We knew we wanted to launch in March or April, and so when news of COVID first hit, we were <laughs> just extremely upset because we were like, "Oh, we were just ready. We just got everything in place. We did all this play testing. We did all this design work." So. It was a frustrating moment followed by, you know, complete excitement over, you know, what turned into. But it was definitely a, we were very nervous at the time. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're not alone. I mean, I have other clients who have, who were very hesitant to run their Kickstarter during the pandemic and it maybe delayed things until, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say it's uh, it's going down now, but at least <laughs> until maybe it's become the new normal, and and people are sort of I don't know going back to kind of living their life and and hopefully backing Kickstarters again. But yeah, Frosthaven kind of showed that there's no there's no reason why you can't run one, and you know the success of yours, while not Frosthaven level, I think also shows that too, right? That it is possible. I mean, <laughs> from looking at Canvas, I don't know if, if listeners haven't seen it. You, you know, you're playing the game and you're creating. You're using transparent cards that, to create a, a piece of artwork, right? As you play, 
I mean, it's kind of beautiful. It looks like it's it's a way to sort of bring something beautiful into people's lives. It doesn't sound like uh, it was created for the pandemic audience, though. Correct? I mean, you, you had been ramping up for a while, but it, it does seem like a great yeah. fit. Yeah, just good luck there, you know? <laughs> we just got yeah, lucky. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Have you experienced any issues uh, dealing with manufacturing or, or anything like that? Distribution? <laughs> Playtesting, we're going to talk about playtesting after, but as far as the manufacturing side of things, uh, I know you have unique components, so has that made things difficult? I will say, like, as far as playtesting goes, that was a little difficult because we really wanted to do a lot of playtesting before sending it into production just to kind of quell our own memory, you know, <laughs> our own minds and just feel like we're putting the best product forward. So mm-hmm. a lot of the playtesting ended up just being Jeff and I and a giant spreadsheet and just trying to get enough data to kind of validate all our design decisions. So um, I don't think that was our preferred route. We were really expecting to do tons of plays of the game during the Kickstarter to you know, show off the game and market it, but also just to like have you know, anybody... you know. It's it's great to just have opinions and just get feedback and try and understand like how people perceive the game you're making and designing and the artwork and and that was tough so uh, yeah yeah nowadays our playtesting uh, process is it's gotten very different you know everything's all, all digital and a lot of tabletop simulator and tabletopia happening um, so yeah things have changed a lot for us playtesting wise and. Um, I mean, going back to the the unique component thing you mentioned, like when we were doing more physical prototyping um, before this whole COVID mess, um, the, the transparent card aspect of Canvas was certainly a challenge for us to, to prototype and create these transparent cards by hand. We were using the, uh, the, the transparent printer sheets and printing onto them and sleeving those. And um, it was a very complex, arduous process to put all of it together. and. Uh, in a weird way, like this COVID thing has forced us to like uh, become a little more technologically savvy. So we're doing a lot more playtesting digitally, which in some ways like helps us iterate faster. We've also been um, working with uh, a guy named Peter Schutz, who is a backer on the, the Canvas campaign. And he's helped us a lot with kind of iterating digital versions of Canvas, which is certainly a faster way of working uh, with transparent cards than uh, than physically making them by hand. So, yeah, it's uh, this whole thing has certainly affected our process, but it's it's been interesting. Yeah, I see that you have it on Tabletop Simulator as part of the Kickstarter campaign. Is is that a function that's supported in Tabletop Simulator, or was there some special <laughs> I don't know special coding or something required? Definitely special coding, um, like it. A, a layman could use Tabletop Simulator to put most games up there, but when it comes to transparent cards or needing like 3D models of anything, then you you really kind of need a coding background. And and yeah, that was the the challenge for Tabletop Simulator was kind of just like finding someone who knew how to do it. Yeah, I definitely don't. Neither of you have a coding background. Not really for me. 
Not really. I mean, just some front end like web stuff, but really nothing fancy and all self-taught stuff. So <laughs> in short, no. <laughs> when you were preparing for the Kickstarter, uh, I, you talked a little bit about having to create the transparent cards yourself and all of that. But when you were sending things out to reviewers, I mean, was there a hunger from reviewers to actually have something new to play and new to review at that point? We only sent out one review copy. It was Torado. And it was before the uh anything had happened i think it was in like february so um yeah we didn't really experience anything like that with reviewers that's good i mean do you when you when you have your games and you're running your other kickstarters do you normally send out more review copies or was there a a reason to just send (laughs) out the one we have debates over the usefulness of preview videos and Mm -hmm. you know you'll see campaigns that have 10 12 preview videos they're all stacked into you know the campaign page and um i feel like we decided that we just needed a really good review from a very reputable source reputable um and by keeping it to just one review on the page it just made it easier for people to kind of navigate and scroll through that was the thought i (laughs) i think it's hard to say like whether you need a lot of reviews or you don't. I, I, obviously, more reviews helps, but you know, what's that number? I don't know. Right at a certain point, like I feel like there's probably diminishing value for each additional review or preview that you get for your game. I would guess. Again, like you're saying, like this is a totally unquantifiable thing that we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we kind of figured like you get the most value out of that first preview, and then after that, like. Is someone really going to be that much more convinced to back your game based on the second, third, or fourth preview that they watch? Are they going to watch more than one preview? Yeah, there's probably a logarithmic drop off <laughs> or something like that. You know, it's just yeah, I, I, I agree. It does clutter up the page, uh, and it's probably a good a good choice. If you were a new designer now and you were putting out your first game, do you have any advice for for someone to kind of get? this attention from reviewers or to have something to put on their (laughs) Kickstarter page? Um, We always tell people trying to go to Kickstarter for the first time is to find a, especially in these times, find an online community that's very active, get active with them. Like, and uh, like, so for us, it's, it's usually um, our board games, a subreddit of the website, Reddit. And on there is just a bunch of passionate board gamers. And so we kind of, you know, post our own content. We can't, we comment on other people's posts. We stay active. And then that one time a year where, you know, we have a Kickstarter campaign coming out, we can, you know, we're allowed to put up a post that says, Hey, if you're interested, we've been working on this thing. And I think people will like recognize your username if you're active enough and, and they'll actually be very, much more attached to your campaign than if someone was just buying it as a product. And I think those are the types of relationships you really need now more than ever. Um, it takes a lot of work to do, but it's, it's really the groundwork of like your base customer. Like who are the people that, you know, really love your brand? Do you have those people? And if you don't like, you got to find ways to make those like human connections. 
I agree with you. Uh, yeah, I think that becoming part of the community you want to sell to is, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty important because otherwise you're, I don't know, especially in tabletop games. I mean, it seems like a, a type of consumer that is really interested in, in kind of the back and forth and the discussion around games, possibly even more so than actually playing the games. And so if you're part of that community, I, I don't know. I think I, I definitely agree with you. On your Kickstarter, yeah, I just watched. Uh, <laughs> oh, just to that point, I did watch a, a YouTuber today, and he literally talked about that. He's like, sometimes I back it just because I love the story of the creators and I want to see updates every day. And I'd never heard someone say that. And then that uh, big learning moment, <laughs> I was like, whoa, your intuition was correct. The experience yeah. of Kickstarter yeah. is. Well, I think it's something that's just sort of internalized, right? I mean, you give back to the community and they give, they give back to you, right? Especially if your game isn't a $100 miniatures game or something like that. It's, a, it's something that people can... <laughs> yeah, especially. <laughs> so did you find that having the game on Tabletop Simulator, I see that it's on the listed on the Kickstarter campaign page. Do you find that that helps, that people are able to go and play it? Uh, before they buy or do you find that no one no one does that or and it's just sort of more of a marketing tool like we're not afraid to have you play our game we're not keeping it secret right i guess i guess it could go either way yeah i mean it certainly doesn't hurt right like um we've always for our campaigns we try and put you know free printable versions of games when possible or free tabletop simulator versions of games and the idea is like i mean at least for me, the, I'm most convinced to to buy a game if I have played it and I know firsthand that it is fun. So we're, we're hoping other people, you know, kind of felt that too. And you can also trust that a game like is legit and good when you can see like, oh, look, I can see all the moving parts. Like this seems like a real game. Even if you don't actually sit down and play the whole thing, just like knowing that a playable version of it exists might be reassuring to you as a buyer but i don't know uh i suppose like a, a doubt a lot of people always have is like is making my game available for free going to detract from my sales are people just going to play this free edition of the game and i can't say that it's hurt us in any way to make the the printable versions of the game free or to make the you know downloadable tabletop simulator files free like, I don't think that has detracted at all from our sales. Yeah, I think I wonder how many people actually download that. And I, I know that early on in Kickstarter, there were a lot of kind of, I guess the, the term is vaporware or whatever, you know, a game that you sort of, you know, doesn't actually exist. Uh, and and especially when you have sort of CGI animated GIFs of components and all of that. I mean, it's nice to have something downloadable so you can see that there, there's a, actually a game there. To kind of build that. Yeah, if you can, yeah, you want to try and I, we subscribe to you want to make it as tangible as possible. So, you know, give give them a rule book to the best we could complete it and give them, you know, all all the resources possible to say like, hey, this is, yeah, it's not vaporware to your point. Yeah. Yeah. And from a legal perspective, I think one of the fears is always that someone's going to go and steal your game. You know, it, it, it's the same kind of thing with uh, when you pitch to publishers and, and some designers want to have an NDA or something like that to, to protect them. But the reality is, most likely no one's going to steal your game. I mean, there's tons of games out there. Why would anyone steal any particular game? And 
when you create the game, I mean, what you've created has some protection just from the, the time of creation. You have copyright protection in, in the copyrightable bits of your game, not in the mechanics. And I guess if there's some sort of unique mechanic that no one's ever seen before, I don't know, you may want to file a patent, but patents are going to cost you thousands of dollars. So I don't know. It's difficult. The whole thing is, uh, is a difficult uh decision to make but the general practice is that you just put the game out there and the more exposure you get the better right you can't hide it forever Uh, right and and i think to your point about like theft where you see a lot of it is with the you know the the people who worry about that are you know the katans and the the really the games have already blown up and gotten really big um and so it's definitely something that was on our mind as uh our crypt campaign was blowing up is like are we starting to hit critical mass where someone could take a piece of it? And that's when we reached out to you because we're like, what do we do? (laughs) Yeah, it's a tough decision because you don't want to be, especially uh, what this comes up a lot with playtesting is that people want to have NDAs with playtesters and all that. But again, you know, you kind of want people to talk about your game. You want want them to be excited and you Mm -hmm. want them to publicize you. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, especially when you're a a first time designer or, or, you're relatively new uh, and keeping things secret there, there is not too much benefit there. Um, and then for our last thing, do you have any other advice for, for first time creators who might be running their first Kickstarter? Andrew? Um, hmm. Yeah. I, I go back to my main points of just build a community, find people who are passionate about your game. Like you are, you know, go on a, a forum and show them some of your artwork and get people excited early. Um, <laughs> and yeah. be really nice. <laughs> People can be mean on the internet and we don't need any more of that. So I say like positivity has taken us a real uh, long way to, you know, getting people to trust and kind of respect us. You're infamous, right? That's your road. To <laughs> yeah. Infamous for being positive. Uh, Jeff, did you have any other advice for for new creators? I guess I mean the most important thing you can do as a game designer is play test and play test and play test with as many people as possible. Get on Tabletop Simulator, learn the platform. Get on Tabletopia, learn how to make digital versions of your game, of your game and find communities that are willing to to try out each other's games. Reach out to other game designers like. I've never met a game designer who isn't willing to, to try someone else's game, play each other's games. And um, it's a really open and accepting community, um, the whole tabletop world is, and um, world of game designers as well. So take advantage of, you know, of that resource of other designers and reach out to people and work together, collaborate, make changes Never be afraid to make big changes. Be be open to open minded to you know making wild differences in in between each playtest you do. Um, I think that's the, probably the biggest thing I see young new game designers struggle with is they playtest the same version over and over and over. So don't don't get caught in that habit. <laughs> Excellent advice. All right, guys, uh, that is it for this episode. Thank you both for for coming on. Thanks for Appreciate having it. us. Uh, Andrew, where can we find Road to Infamy Games? On the internet, we on have internet. a website, um, roadtoinfamy.com. Um, Road to Infamy Games is also on Facebook. Sometimes we put out content on our YouTube channel. So if you type in Road to Infamy, you can find us 
there. Anything else, Jeff? Um, we got Instagram, R2I Games, and then a Twitter account that no one uses, so don't go to that <laughs> one. Sounds good. Sounds like mine. All right. Find me at gamelawyerblog.com where you can read blog posts from two years ago because I haven't been blogging very much. Uh, and as always, please share the podcast if you enjoy it and leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on. And I will talk to you all next time. Mm-hmm.